My name is Bella Young. I'm a sophomore communication major at Thomas More. Um, and I have two guests with me here today. I have Dr. Julianne Young and Dr. Andrea Milani. Today we're going to be talking about the development of children with ASD in comparison to the development of neurotypical children um, in the first three to four years of life. Uh, I'm going to get handed over to my guests so they have a chance to introduce themselves. Dr. Young. Hi, my name is Dr. Julianne Bosco-Young, and I am the Director of Digital Learning Initiatives here at Thomas More University. Um, and I have five children. Three of them are on the autism spectrum. My name is Dr. Andrea Milani. Um, I'm the director for the Institute for Learning Differences at Thomas More University. The Institute focuses on working with college students um, that have cognitive differences, emotional, social impairments, physical disabilities, and learning disabilities. Dr. Young also happens to be my mom, so that's how I'll be referring to her from here on out because it's weird calling my mom Dr. Young. So to get started, Mom, why don't you go ahead and take us off with beginning stages of how um, people with autism start showing symptoms? Uh, it's, you know, autism is the spectrum, and so it's different for every single person, but really there's two sort of modes um, with autism. Uh, the early, maybe we can call it early onset mode, where you have children who really never develop uh, typically, right? So this would be my, my oldest, um, where at nine months we're like, you know, he doesn't really babble the right way, he's not communicating the right way, he doesn't cuddle the same way as other babies. Um, and so we never really saw typical development with him. Um, his first diagnosis actually wasn't autism spectrum disorder. They, they thought he might have pervasive developmental um, delay, uh, and then later came to be autism spectrum disorder. Um, and then you have the children who are developing normally, um, and then they get to um, they get to ages three or four, um, or usually two or three perhaps, and uh, they regress and they lose skills that they already had, and uh, they lose their ability to communicate. They lose their ability to be um, many times they, to be affectionate. I guess I should also say that I have a PhD in psychology. Um, yeah. focusing on interpersonal um, skills and identity. Yeah, so uh, definitely one of the more qualified people I know to speak on this topic. Um, in one of the papers I was reading, it said that the diagnostic criteria for regression is very limited, and it also said that the definition of regression um, kind of bounces around. Do you think that if we were to kind of universally change the definition of regression so that the diagnostic criteria would be the same across the board. Do you think that would help in early autism diagnosis? It would. Uh, I think we would also probably see autism diagnoses increase. Uh, you know, we hear this mantra a lot. There wasn't this much autism 30 years ago. There wasn't this much autism 50 years ago. Well, there was. We just weren't diagnosing it because we didn't have the uh, level, uh, we didn't have the diagnostic criteria settled like we do now. If we were to standardize things, um, especially in this area of regression, um, we probably would see a more um, a ro more robust di uh, diagno diagnosis for autism. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, um, it depends on your outlook on autism. For people who look at autism as a dirty word, they don't want more um, autism diagnoses in our society. They don't want to have the different um, types of learning, different types of being, and so they would, you know, give that a thumbs down. Uh, for people like me and Andrea, um, who don't see autism as a dirty word and see it as beautiful um, differences in our society, we say yes, give that a thumbs up so that we can learn and so that we can um, celebrate the differences between people and so that we can help people become the best versions of themselves, whatever that might be. 
So you talked uh, just briefly about the kind of stigma surrounding autism spectrum disorder. Dr. Malani, do you want to talk a little bit about if you see that stigma in your line of work working with neurodivergent students? Yeah, absolutely. We do see it. So there's a movement called neurodiversity. Um, as you know, a, we're advocating um, this concept that our brains are different, whether they're neurotypical or neurodivergent. And so basically everyone should be treated equally. Um, so, you know, that's something we're looking at. I think it's very difficult for parents and students, especially sometimes entering into the higher ed realm, um, to self-identify. So I think one of the barriers we often see, and this is true at most schools, is students don't want to self-identify. Um, and unfortunately, universities cannot ask if um, they need those type of services. So I think one of the awarenesses we try to do with families is, is letting them know what the resources out there are. Mom, one of the articles I read talked about uh, the connective network in neurotypical brains versus um, in neurodivergent brains. Um, so it kind of explained that um, there's local overconnectivity in children with autism spectrum disorder so that their neurons are firing almost too close together. Um, and then it talked about long-range underconnectivity can you speak on that at all? Do you have any? Sure. Our brain commu communicates through neural communication, right? So anytime that we are going to speak, move, um, or understand the world around us, our neurons have to be able to communicate, right? So this article talks about how the brain of autistic children fires differently than the brain of typically developing children, right? So let's say we have a child who's typically developing and they encounter a social situation, right? And they see over on the left, they see friends playing, okay? They may, their neurons fire and they may um, begin to dream about, think about, experience emotion um, related to wanting to engage with those people, right? The child who's neurodivergent their neurons are going to fire in different ways in which perhaps they're going to hyper-focus on the rolling of the cars that the children are playing with, or perhaps they're going to focus on mirroring or parallel playing with those children rather than actually engaging with those children. So the way that their neurons are actually firing is the root of where uh, we're seeing the differences in behaviors. Now, what causes those neurons to fire differently, that's a question that we don't have the answer to yet. Is it experience? Probably not all experience, you know, probably part of that is biology. But we do know um, that all experiences that we have changes the, ex the expressions in our brains, right? So anytime they have experiences that way, it's just going to lay down more of those um, pathways in the brain. So the more that happens, the more pathways in the brain are going to be laid down that way. So does the uh, local overconnectivity and long-range underconnectivity play into the lack of social awareness and repetitive behaviors? Right. So with repetitive behaviors, um, so if you do a, an activity and you receive satisfaction from it, right, you can continue. You can remember that activity. You can think about how satisfying that was. Someone with autism, they will repeat that activity over and over to receive the same pleasure. Or um, it's also a calming sort of behavior, right? So they will continue to do a certain behavior to calm themselves. And and as you know, with your brothers, um, some some behaviors are very. Um, 
innocuous, right? Um, and they, uh, but then some can be very uh, outside the norm, right? So spinning in a circle or needing to hit yourself in the head, something like that. Things like we don't singing understand. Singing Frozen. Singing Frozen, right? So my youngest likes to sing Frozen, um, and he would sing it at variety of times, and it didn't matter when, where, or how that happened, right? So his neuro um, typical siblings were tired of hearing Frozen, and I had to remind them that um, they might be singing an earworm, um, and they just don't know that they, you know, they do, they just don't express it the way he does also. Um, and then yes, also for, with parallel play, this is, this is where, um, they have difficulty, um, many, not all, not all autistic children or individuals have difficulty with social interactions. As you know, our, my oldest, um, is big extrovert, right? Um, and so people regularly tell me, oh, he can't be autistic. He's so friendly or he's so outgoing. No, he is autistic, um, because autism is a spectrum and, uh, he is extroverted. Um, but he has a great difficulty understanding social situations. He now at this age of 21 understands most social situations and has to how to navigate them. Um, but it took a long time and a lot of therapy uh, to get there. Dr. Milani, you know my older brother, uh, who she was just talking about pretty well. Do you, do you notice any differences between someone who has been able to grasp these social concepts well and how he's doing in college versus someone who didn't have the same resources or therapies available to them? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I have um, s several students in my program that are on the spectrum, and it's it's very apparent the students um, who had those services in place most of their development. Um, in those students, we see more of those executive functioning skills working a little better, like the flexible thinking, um, being able to self-control, self-regulate, um, and kind of that working memory as well. So we are always encouraging families, you know, and I think that goes back to the stigma, right? <laughs> getting, you know, getting over the stigma of the diagnosis and getting the services that are out there because there are so many rich services that are out there that can really make significant changes. Right, and some of those services are social in nature, some of them are biological in nature, some of them are interpersonal in nature, and for many families, they so don't want the autism diagnosis that they don't look for the services that are related to it. And so in the long term, um, what they're doing is they're actually hindering their children from their full um, social development, right? And so we see that, you know, across the board uh, where their children don't develop, as Andrea mentioned, the flexible thinking or being able to self-regulate um, or manage emotion uh, because they haven't had the help, right? So neurotypical children develop those skills almost second nature. Children with autism need help learning how to do that. And I would also add that many of these services um, can be of no cost, Absolutely. depending on your, you know, financial situation. So, you know, they don't need to be cost prohibited. Right. So in the state of Kentucky, um, you, your child, if they are delayed in any way, you can receive a free preschool that includes occupational therapy, physical therapy, or speech therapy. So, uh, and you could, those can start at the age of two years old. They will actually come to your house and pick your child up and take them to preschool for you. So your child can begin to have services. So far, we've really only talked about um, the behavioral side of the diagnostic criteria and um, how people with ASD kind of interact with others, but I'd like to move more on to the biological side. Um, Mom, can you talk a little bit about um, how autism forms um, before birth and how it kind of plays out? I'd like to just briefly talk about um, 
the surprise autism in our family, right? So daddy and I um, are both well-educated, intelligent individuals. um, Daddy has a degree and is um, very smart. I have a PhD. And um, so when our oldest was born, uh, we sort of felt like we got hit by a Mack truck. We had no clue there was autism um, in in our family. Uh, And then, you know, you came along and you were completely neurotypical, much to our oldest child's chagrin. Um, and we assumed our oldest child was a fluke. Um, oh, you know, you know, one in 68 kids become autistic, and so it's just him, and okay. Um, and then the third came, and he was autistic, and I started to think, huh, maybe there's actually something going on uh, within us, with the way our genes um, work together. And so then we really started sitting down, like, taking a hard look at our family, and I started re- recognizing significant behaviors. And while I have other individuals on my side of the family and daddy's side of the family who don't pass what we would call the diagnostic threshold, they definitely have behaviors that lean towards the spectrum. So for some situations of autism, um, we can trace them back to birth, right? It's obvious with your oldest brother, um, he, when he was born, um, he, he came delivered this way, right? This was his packaging. And so I'm, I suspect if we were to type out his genome, we would see um, deletions in certain areas of the DNA um, or um, certain um, areas that are weak or strong um, based on, on the way that Dianyce genes combined. Um, but that's not always the case. Sometimes genetic differences does not account for 100% of autistic cases. There are cases, many cases, that we can't link it back to genetics. And that's the question. Where does that come from? Environmental influences, right? So we have social influences, environmental influences, genetic influences. So then we're looking at environmental influences and social influences. Well, you're not going to say, oh, this nine-month-old um, you know, is having poor play, right? This is the situation where we might talk about regression. Um, for social or environmental, um, are they getting enough stimulation? Because, you know, babies need interaction, right? We talk about um, Piaget, and he says you've got to have give and take with the child for them to be able to develop. Normally, if, the, if it's not biological, you have to start looking at those, those other factors, right? And so for a long time, we only focused on those other factors. And we thought for sure we could eradicate autism if we just... If we just, well, if we just put them in this therapy, if we just put them in that therapy, and people in our own family thought, well, you're getting him so much help, he'll be normal. And I knew, we all knew, uh, Daddy and I knew at least, you know, quote unquote, normal wasn't the goal. Um, we wanted our children to become the best versions of themselves. Um, I would say, uh, from the university kind of perspective, um, one of the one of the pieces of my job or components of my job is to um, also work with parents. So um, it is often very obvious to me that um, some of the um, diagnoses that students come in with, their parents also have those diagnoses. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think that also can make it hard sometimes to self-identify because, you know, you're, you're, you're recognizing it. You have to recognize it yourself and your That's child. Right. That's right. Um, so I think uh, kind of my aha moment in, in the work I do um, was coming to that realization. And then so it's not just support I provide, we provide for the students, but we're oftentimes supporting the parents as well. There was a, one of the articles I read talked a lot about um, head size in <laughs> children with autism. It talked a lot about the cerebrospinal fluid and the white matter in the brain. Um, can you talk at all about what that is? Or? 
So um, the theory that the paper puts forth is that there is um, the, the, the head size for children with autism is larger. There is a more cerebrospinal fluid in children with, with autism. Bella references our middle son who has a gigantic head. Um, and when he was born, they actually were um, monitoring him and they were measuring his head every two weeks for about the first oh, I'm, six months of his life because his head was just getting larger and larger. Um, <laughs> and they were worried about the cerebrospinal fluid um, if, if he was accumulating too much. Um, but, you know, it's funny, we, we have uh, another family member who had a very large head as a child, and she is also now diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Um, so um, that's the idea there. Um, the white matter, um, again, it's, it's the accumulation of where the white matter is and how the white matter is working and functioning that they're showing differences between the autism children with autism spectrum and the children without uh, autism spectrum. Again, how does that happen? No, it's anyone's guess. White matter um, kind of tie back into the... Uh, connectivity in the brain is that uh, cause or correlation it could it could awesome um so one of the things that this one of the articles talked about was the positive predictive outcome or diagnosis um where they were actually able to track the head size and the cerebrospinal fluid in children in siblings of children who have been diagnosed um and ended up having an 88 percent um positive predictive diagnostic outcome um, so do you think, either of you think, that the biological factors could be, um, do you think that they could be kind of forthcoming of an earlier autism diagnosis just compared to the behavioral side of things? Yeah, so definitely. Um, you know, <coughs> if you think of every situation in our cells and our bodies, you know, that there's links to all of our genetics. <laughs> you know, if your parents have high blood pressure, there's a good chance you could have high blood pressure. Um, so I think, again, it's it's important to your point to try to do that study and those research, um, look at some of the biology in family members. Um, and again, that just brings around that self-awareness and, and stigma mm -hmm. and those other things. But, you know, anytime you go into, and I, I like to give this comparison sometime for parents, you know, you go into the doctor for your annual checkup and the first thing they do is they ask you about your family history. Absolutely. And you know, the, those are the type of um, questions we also need to be answering. You know, do you have family members mm -hmm. <laughs> who, who are on the spectrum or, you know, those type of things. And I think that could also lead um, to reducing some of the stigma. You know, interestingly, I am seeing more and more when we, when we ask those questions, does anybody in your family have psychological um, have a psychological illness, which is great because we do know that with psychological challenges, depression runs in families, anxiety runs in families, things like that. Um, so they are starting to ask those questions in that area. You know, so we're trying to reduce the stigma surrounding mental illness. Perhaps you know we can we can make that same motion, that same movement within autism spectrum disorder, so that we can start to look at that. Children's Hospital here in Cincinnati, Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. Um, absolutely are trying to map the, famil the familial relationships of autism, right? Um, to, to try to map the genome between, between family members and look at the predictive nature um, between siblings, um, between parents and children, between cousins, all of those things. And so to try and find that magic key. Is there going to be a magic key? No, because there's more than one root cause of autism. Mm -hmm. But the closer we can get, the better. Talked about so far biological um behavioral symptoms of autism spectrum disorder. Um, a quote directly from um, the 
pay for autism and abnormal development of brain connectivity. Um, it says that clinically autism is defined by a triad of deficits comprising impaired social interaction, impaired communication, restricted interests, and repetitive behaviors. Everything that we've talked about so far, um, do you see that even as people with autism spectrum disorder get older, or is it a common myth that they grow out of these kind of behaviors, or that they should grow out of these behaviors? Um, yes. Yeah, so I think you see some reduction in those behaviors, um, but you can see, so like the repetitive um, motion, um, you you can off, sometimes in college, we will see that kind of re reopen or you'll see it happening more often Especially when a student gets stressed. Yep. Um, you know, so I think that that's important and people don't understand what that is or why, but that's really a release. So again, if you're put under stressful situations, sometimes you'll see that um, appear more, a loss of emotional control or self-regulation and things like that. Right. So do you grow out of autism? No. no. But do you learn to adapt to your social situations? Absolutely, especially with good therapy, right? So if I think about one of my children, um, when he was younger, he would come in from school um, and he would immediately take off his belt and his shoes and his socks. He hated anything restrictive. And we could follow the path from the front door to the couch where he would then be sitting in his underwear for the rest of the night because he hated clothing, right? Okay. That's how he was in the house. Outside of the house, he remained fully dressed. Why? Because we worked from the time he was younger to when you're outside, you have to have, uh, you know, at least pants on, right? And then when we moved to pants and a shirt, okay, and now we have to move out of flip-flops. And, you, you know, you take those baby steps. Now he has no problem staying fully dressed in all social and public situations. <laughs> However, when he was younger, Bella, I don't know if you remember, um, but if he were to become stressed, there were times that the belt would come off and the shoes would be thrown because that was the first thing. Um, that has not happened now in, oh, um, 14 years, thank goodness, right? Yeah. Uh, because a 17-year-old doing that is not the same as a three-year-old. So what would you say to parents who are almost hypervigilant to any sort of um, developmental delays or possible diagnoses of an autism spectrum disorder because their child isn't developing normally? Or another way to ask is, is there a difference between children not developing normally and children who will go on to be diagnosed? Yeah, I mean... There's a wide range of why children don't develop along the, the, the quote-unquote regular path. One thing I would like to say right now is that we the regular path is becoming less regular. Yes, right? 100%. We're understanding more and more that that path that we have written down in our textbooks looks different and that that's okay. Um, and good pediatricians, good um, interventionists will say this is okay. One thing I learned uh, with our oldest, with your brother, or your oldest brother, is that Communication comes in many forms, right? So when he wasn't speaking, but we were teaching him sign language, he was picking up language really quickly, right? And that's another mode of communication, and that's okay. And parents need to be okay with that. So many times when parents are hypervigilant, it's because of that laser focus on what they consider to be normal or typical, right? So they can they think, oh, my daughter has to play with... Um, Barbie dolls and my daughter has to want to play with the kitchen. Well, my daughter used her Barbie doll as a bat. So um, it didn't work out so well for us. And I could have taken her to the doctor and said she doesn't have typical behavior. I did take my daughter to the doctor because she would consistently fall out of chairs. Um, and I remember saying, is it possible that my daughter has some sort of neurological issue that she can't stay upright? And the pediatrician laughed at me and said, uh, no, she's just clumsy. Um, and so... 
I think that's a really good example because we were so hypervigilant with her older brother at that point, getting him services that I saw. I looked at a typical behavior that my daughter would be sitting in a chair and then just fall out <laughs> as, as abnormal, right? And so having good people that you can check with, um, pediatricians, interventionalists, preschool teachers who will tell you, yay or nay, you're good, um, or, or let's get services in your life is really important. And I think talking about it, so again, we go back to this this concept of this stigma. You know, I have a, a student in my program who um, he stims, uh, helps with his motions by holding a transformer. Well, that may not seem what we would call quote unquote normal, but for him, having that keeps him focused in class and keeps his stress level down. Um, and so I think it's it's kind of important that we have these conversations like we're doing today um, and that we let everyone know there is no normal. Right. Yes. Thank <laughs> there you. There is no universal definition of normal. Um, so, you know, we're all individuals. We all learn and develop in very different ways. And I would like to say with that student, how many other people when that child, I'm not sorry, child, when that adolescent is holding that transformer is thinking to themselves, wow, I really would like to bring my fuzzy to class, but I don't have the guts or no one ever told me it was okay to bring my fuzzy to class. Or how many of them have um, bite marks on their pencils? Or how many of them have certain pens or pencils they have to use or, um, you know, uh, rip apart their socks or something like that? We all have things that help us calm. And many times, you know, we label it as typically developing or not typically developing by societal standards. I think those societal standards are loosening, um, which is great, right? And hopefully, you know, I love that that, that that adolescent carries a Transformers. I would love to see more kids walking around campus with Transformers or whatever that it is that they need. Um, but I, I, you know, I know that all college kids have things like that too. So we are out of time. I wanted to thank you both for coming and sitting and talking with me today. Um, I really like the conversation we had. Are there any final thoughts either of you would like to share? I'd like to say that autism isn't a dirty word. Um, in our house, autism is celebrated and it's beautiful. And many times when our children do something unique and amazing, I'll say, dude, is that your autism that lets you do that or helps you do that? And uh, they'll say yes. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, look what he can do, right? So when your brother could say the alphabet backwards really, really fast right away Freaky. without having to try, because he can see that in his head that way. Um, I was like, can you do that? Does your autism help you do that? And he's like, you you can't do that? No. <laughs> or Or when your oldest brother can memorize oh, I don't know, a hundred things in 10 minutes, but can't remember to put on his shoes. I'll be like, is that your autism that helps you? That he's, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And if you can embrace it, you can really find strengths for all children, regardless if they're neurotypical or neurodivergent. And if you can celebrate those things, you really, um, we're going to have a much better um, life for all children. Yeah, I think, again, getting away from, and I keep saying the word stigma, but it's it's very prevalent, um, kind of getting away from that, and to, to Dr. Young's point, um, focusing on someone's abilities <laughs> is very key, and that's something that we do in my program. You know, we focus on a student's strengths and their abilities, and then help them with the other things. Right. Um, so really leveraging all of our individual strengths is very important. I also think autism is beautiful. And yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you both very much for coming and sitting with me. It was a pleasure talking with you.